Father, we believe that today. And God, it is good news today that, that those who are in Christ are the only ones that can say it is well with our soul, regardless of the circumstances. So God, as we continue to worship through the, the reading of the word of God, Lord, I pray that, that you would have something for us today. And God, we are entrusting as we open the word that, that you would move in a mighty way. And God, as, as I come uh, and humbly proclaim the word of God, Lord, I pray that you would move me out of the way. Father, that there are my words, that they would fall on deaf ears. God, that each and every one of us today could walk away with a greater understanding, knowledge, and conviction of who you are. Jesus, we love you, and we need you every day. So God, I pray that the, that the goodness of who you are is not stale this morning, uh, that maybe for the first time in a while that we are reminded of the sweetness of what it means to be in the family of God. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So you guys can be seated. Guys, my name is Garrett Perkins. I'm one of the directors at Canicut Camps, and I have the privilege and honor of being here uh, this week and two more weeks. So uh, hang in there with me as we're working through the first chapter of the book of James. Uh, and we're really, we've titled this series A Saving Faith. And my hope over these four weeks is, one, going verse by verse through the Bible to show us that when we simply just let God uh, interpret the Bible, going verse by verse, not dodging things, but letting uh, every verse hold value, we're gonna see that God moves in a mighty way. That every word, every verse is in here for a reason. Uh, and my hope is that we're gonna really see what it looks like to have a faith that is actually shaped by the gospel of Jesus. Because really, two weeks ago, we celebrated probably the most important event in all of history. Yes, the cross was valuable, but without the resurrection, it'd be, it would return void. So my hope is that we would see that that. A Christian faith is distinctly different and more potent and powerful than any other faith. It's not hard to have faith. An atheist has faith. The demons have faith, as it says in James, that they believed and they actually shuddered. So they actually had a certain knowledge of this God guy, but they still, uh, they, did, they don't have eternal life. So we need to understand what is distinct and different about a faith that has been shaped by the gospel of Jesus. And last week, we looked at, looked at chapters 1, uh, verses 1 through 12, and saw really how God interacts with us in the midst of trials. So first and foremost, I want to connect the dots of last week if you weren't here. So that's going to help pivot us into this week. So last week, James connected uh, the dots of reminding us that if a saving faith is one that actually steps into trials, that God is intimately involved in the suffering of the life of the believer. He doesn't want us to abandon him when things get hard, but to lean in to suffering and trials, to step into it. And two, we learned that trials actually expose our need for God. That's why it says that we should ask God for wisdom on how to handle our suffering, and he gives generously to all without fault. You know, this is our God, that he, he wants us to lean in to him. Because when we expose our need for God, one, the world sees, wow, they're not the captain of their ship. God is. So we, we're, we're seeing that, that suffering, trials, anguish, and pain are actually a powerful tool for evangelism. Because the world sees that we interact with suffering differently than they do. And last, we learned that uh, trials and suffering, uh, that a saving faith is one that actually cherishes the future glory over our present circumstances. 
That we would look to the future and remember what has already been accomplished on our behalf in the midst of suffering so then we can actually endure it well. This is what a saving faith uh, looks like, one that is extremely hopeful amidst dire circumstances on this earth. And today we're going to look at really another aspect of a saving faith, one, a saving faith that is faithful. So as you turn with me to James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 in your pew Bibles, it's page 1196 if you're turning there or it'll be on the screens. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. This is what it says. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. But when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And we end in verse 18, that he, does, or he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might become the first fruits of all he created. So James' hope here uh, is one, he set, the, he set the page with verses 1 through 12, that the first thing that he addresses to the believers in the early church is not uh, giving them a roadmap on maybe how to flee sexual morality or be good parents or tithe your money or obey, but simply how to function amidst trials. So that suffering has a unique place in the believer. It says in James 1, 2, and 3 that we should consider it joy when we face trials. That everyone in this world is going to experience the pains of a Genesis 3 world, meaning a world that has fallen, a world that sin is rampant, that we're going to experience trials, but a saving faith is one that looks distinctly different than the world. But then in 12, or excuse me, in verse 13, we see a shift in his language, that we go from this cosmic picture of how God interacts with us amidst suffering, and now we're into the trenches of how we're supposed to interact with suffering and trials, because James is utterly aware that when suffering comes, temptation comes right on the heels. So we're going to talk about temptation in verses 13 through 15, but we're going to talk about temptation and sin in the, amidst trials and suffering because Satan, I think, knows how potent and powerful suffering can be for the glory of God. So he wants to choke out our need for God amidst suffering so we ignore what God has for us in the midst of it. And this is what he means by being tempted. It's not just being tempted in general, but it's where are you being tempted? Where's Satan and your desires coming after you in the midst of the fiery trials of life? So here we go in verse 13. This is what it says. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. So we see James giving this warning because James deeply fears that believers in the early church, this is not many years after Jesus Christ has died, crucified, and ascended. So he's talking to the believers that believed at Pentecost and dispersed back into their hometowns. And now he's wanting to equip them because they're hearing these words about this guy named Stephen that had just been stoned. In the book of Acts, and they're hearing, oh my gosh, 
my brothers and my sisters in other towns, they're being imprisoned by this guy named Saul. And they're being put to death by this guy named Saul. This Jesus guy, does it really hold power for me today? And James knows that in the midst of the suffering is going to come the temptation. So he wants to really let, hopefully get us to understand that in the midst of temptation, or in the midst of trials, temptation is going to come. And if we do not create a space in our theology to understand how God actually interacts with us in the midst of suffering, that we actually, in the midst of the struggle and hardship, that we still don't abandon the goodness and sweetness of God, then when temptation comes, we're going to be turned over and we're going to put God in the rearview mirror and we're going to abandon him at first sight of tension. And we see this with some people in the early church, and we still see this today, that people that, place, that, that claim to place faith in Jesus, but then when certain suffering comes, they immediately abandon God. And if God is good, there's no way he could X. I work with 1,800 college students, and that's the question over and over and over again every summer we get. How can God be good if there is cancer or if there is tornadoes or if there is flooding? How is suffering connected to a good God? And James understands that that's going to be a problem. And so he, so he knows that when temptation comes, he wants to help us create this space to understand and view suffering in the correct lens. In verse 13, he reminds us that really the natural inclination of our hearts is not going to be to lean into suffering. It's not going to be to lean into God amidst suffering. The natural inclination of our hearts is going to be to follow our own desires. So James is building this, this argument and pinning up trials versus temptation Because amidst suffering, I think those feel very similar. But James makes it very clear that, one, they're very close uh, in in the beginning, but at the end, the end result of a trial and the end result of temptation are drastically different. So trials, as we see in the first half of James chapter 1, is that trials are actually there uh, to test our faith, as it says. And not only that, they're there to to push us to God. Not to get out necessarily of the trial, but to make us rely on God. To realize that, yes, the world is ever-changing, but God is not. And last, it's going to produce this beautiful sense of perseverance, this confidence that, yes, the world is shifting, and it's hard, and it's brutal, but I actually can still be okay because I am in Christ. And last, the outcome of suffering and trials in the midst of the believer, this beautiful picture of that God actually can be glorified, and the world sees God, that this God that they believe in actually holds some power. But in the midst of temptation, we see something drastically different. What's interesting, the world hates trials. The world says, run, get out of Dodge in the midst of trials, that there's no way that God could be involved in trials. Trials is the number one argument that a lot of atheists would say that there's no existence of God, that God cannot be around if there is suffering in the world, where James, or really God through James, is making the argument, no, that it's actually the best example that God is intimately around when we are in suffering and trials. So the world is lying to us about suffering and trials. But also we see the world lies to us about temptation as well. Because in the midst of suffering and temptation, the world's going to tell us what? Chase your desires. Cope. Whatever feels good for you, run after that. And that will fill the void and make you feel better amongst the suffering and temptation of the world. And really, it's deception. As it says in verse 17 when he says, do not be deceived. And not only that, the really temptation is not, has nothing to do with God. He says that God is not tempted with evil. But really we're tempted when what? When we follow and are enticed by our own evil desires. So now, all of a sudden, in the midst of suffering, 
the biggest problem in the midst of how to navigate through suffering well is not God. The problem is us. The problem in the midst of how to navigate through suffering well, it's us and what we believe about God. And last, when we start to follow our desires and abandon God, and, and then all of a sudden we, it gives birth to sin, and sin then gives birth fully grown to death. And we see this in the midst of suffering with some people, and, and, and I am not perfect. I'll give you a perfect example. I talked about it last week, a year and a half ago. My wife and I lost, uh, lost a child in a miscarriage. And I watched my wife beautifully lean in and step into the trial with grace and mercy and a deep belief and conviction that God is still good. And my first inclination was to abandon it. And all of a sudden, for three, four weeks, I grew this bitterness. And all of a sudden, we started getting Christmas cards of people that were having children or new babies uh, were being born. My first response was not, oh, good for them. My first response was, how dare God give them that and not me? That I was being enticed by my own desires to make me feel better, and I used my suffering to justify my sin. And if we are not careful, we abandon the sweetness and goodness of God in the midst of suffering, and we chase the world. So we need to understand that trials and temptation, although feel very, very close, the end result of both are drastically different. And so then the question is, well, what do we, how do we navigate through that? How do we know what to do? And James doesn't leave us astray. In 16, verse 16 and 17, he says this. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Do not miss this. Just like what we talked about, pointing up to verses 13 through 15. Do not miss that the world is lying to us. The world has been lying to us since Satan came to the garden a long time ago asking the question, is God really good? God told us not to eat of this. He would give everything else, but God told us not to eat of this. And Satan asked one question. Did he really say that? A.K. translation, he's keeping something from you. This is what the world says. And in the midst of suffering, it's ever-present. So he says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers, because every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. So this is a weird transition after he gives this warning of trials and temptations. Then he makes this shift to mentioning gifts. And I, and I can imagine what Garrett would have done if I read this the day after I, uh, my wife and I had the miscarriage. I think I would have read this and been offended. I was saying, how dare James talk about giving me gifts when God has given me pain and anguish and whatever it looks like. How dare him? But all of a sudden, James starts connecting gifts to something other than our suffering. Notice what it says, that, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, that James is referring to that the gift is not the suffering and the trials, but the gift is something that comes from above. And does that not sound familiar than a per, that a person thousands of years ago that considered equality with God not something to be grasped, but humbled himself to a servant and came down being obedient to the point of slavery to the point of death? That this is what he's referring to, that in the midst of the suffering and trials, we must Anchor our souls to something that actually holds weight. And if we try to manifest the gifts ourselves, we will return void. 
So in the midst of the suffering and the pain and the anguish, I tried to manifest uh, my feelings for, uh, for being joyful of going, well, if I, just, if I talk bad about others, then it'll make me feel better about myself to exalt myself, make me feel better. That's what I did for three, four weeks. I was bitter. I was angry. Instead of looking back and going, yes, I've, things have been taken from me, but I still have joy. But if we try and manifest the gifts on our own, we will always fall short. So in the thick of suffering and in the thick of being tempted, our joy will have to come from above. It has to. And our lasting contentment has to be rooted in the accomplishments of Jesus. And our endurance, our perseverance of how we navigate through the suffering and trials well will only last as far as our view of God's love. Because every good and perfect gift comes from above. And notice he uses the word from the heavenly Father. Because he reminds us that our God is a Father. So in the midst of temptation, in the midst of suffering, here's, here, here's the main point today. Here's what a saving faith looks like. One that is being hailed, the hailstorms of suffering comes, we're being tempted, and really what James desires for us to do is that no matter how intimately uh, involved our knowledge is of our suffering, our pain, our anguish, we have to have a greater knowledge, a greater belief, a greater understanding, a greater conviction, a greater contentment in the finished work of Jesus, that our view of God has to expand, that Jesus still has to be sweet amongst suffering, that if our suffering holds more power than the power that Jesus did on our behalf to save our souls, God will not be good among suffering. He won't be. Because here's my fear. I think that amidst suffering and trials, we forget the mighty work that God has already done on your and my behalf on the cross and in the empty tomb. Because in the midst of suffering, pain, and anguish, I think we result back to the same thing that the early church did in the midst of suffering, pain, and anguish, that we think um, blessing or trials or curses have something to do with how we act. The word, is, is, in theological terms, is actually called retribution theology. So here's what we do, and here's what the early church did, uh, that we look at how people act versus what they get. So if someone is good, they get blessing, and if someone is evil or bad, they get cursed. And now at first sight, we go, well, well, hold on, what's wrong with that? That's, that's how I parent. And that's, that's, that's really how I parent a lot of times as well. That if my daughter is good and obeys, she gets a reward. And if she doesn't obey, she gets a consequence. So yes, that is okay. And then in our democratic republic, we do have a system in place that really operates like that. But here's what's the sweetest news ever. In God's economy, that is not how it works. That is not how it works. So my question for you today to be honest with yourself because this is how I viewed it right after we found out we miscarried that God I was I was the faithful one God I've been good give me blessing and if I was really honest I'd go even farther and go God they were evil give them curses how wretched of my flesh that was the natural inclination of my heart and the remedy for my problem of my sin, as he says here in verse 18, and this is what James ends with, this is the remedy on how we can reorient 
our view of how to interact with God among suffering, that uh, the greatest way that James encourages us to do it is through adoration. It's almost like James births into a worship song here. That in the midst of the suffering and anguish and temptation, he doesn't go and give you three points of the three ways to get out of suffering. He births into doxology. Listen to this in verse 17 and 18. That every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And in verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created, that God chose to give us birth, a spiritual birth. So my, I'm gonna take five minutes today, and there are two groups of people in this room, and I think some of us, um, we're flourishing right now. We got a paycheck, we're, we're okay, our kids are all right. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no health issues, we're, everything, our house is stable, we're good to go, and, and, and I wanna remind us today, that, that that is only by the grace of a sovereign God to give you those common graces. And I think we, immediately in the midst of when things are good, we forget about our need for God, which shows why he gives us or allows us to walk through suffering. Because in the midst with some of us in, in this other group, I think some of us, the waters are rising and we are in the midst of trials and we are in the midst of suffering and we are in the midst of pain, and James's remedy for us today is to remind us of the sweetness of what God has done on the behalf of every single person that has confessed and believed. Because I think, if we're honest, that has become stale. That we don't actually appreciate the mighty work that God has already done. Because if we look at gospel theology, it looks a lot like retribution theology, but there's some minor differences. Instead of good people and evil people, there was Jesus and there was us. Then it makes it really clear that in the midst of suffering, there was really one standard of how to suffer well. And really the law says that you have to do everything perfectly to inherit the kingdom of God. So we need to look at how Jesus suffered as not only our example, but as our standard. Here's how Jesus suffered well. In Matthew 26, uh, 39, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is how Jesus responded among suffering. That he, was, that he was sweating blood and he goes to his father and he says, Father, take this cup from me. All the weight of the burden of sin, anguish and pain, take it from me. But not my will, but your will. That wasn't three, four weeks later. That was, Father, if you would, would you take this from me? But you are still good. You are still authority. You are still God. I still trust you, and I will walk faithfully, and it is your will in my life, not my will. This is Jesus. This is our God. This is our standard. It says in 1 Peter that he, uh, that he had never once deceived another individual. He committed no sin. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, nor heights, nor depths, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, rules, nor authorities are over him. It says that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. This is Jesus. The only person that can claim to be good was him. And then the Bible has stuff to say about us. Right away, right after the fall of man, the first thing that comes out of God's mouth when he looks at Adam is cursed is the ground because of you. And it's easy for us to go, well, yeah, that was Adam. I just inherited disobedience. I'm really not that bad. Well, actually, it says in Romans 5 that out of one man's disobedience, all men became disobedient. 
And if we just are honest with ourselves for two seconds, we go, yeah, that's true. Because Romans 3.23 and 6.23 says that for the wages of sin is death and actually that all have fallen short of the glory of God. So really, the concept of this retribution theology that evil deserved cursed is true. And you and I, in our natural inclination of our heart, in the midst of suffering, we're always going to walk to the world. We desire it. That's, That's how we're wired now. But God, my two favorite words in the Bible, but God, Ephesians 2, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich and mercy, saved us, for it is by grace we have been saved through faith, not so that we can boast. This is the God that is intimately involved with us in the midst of suffering. Because this is what's beautiful about gospel theology, that the one perfect good individual became cursed on our behalf that he was despised and rejected amongst men when we should have been despised and rejected amongst God. And that us, the evil ones, the lawless ones, as as it says, as Peter said in Acts 4, that it was you and I who actually crucified Christ. That we actually don't get cursed. We get blessing, which should be Christ. We don't just get blessing, we get righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so we might become the blessing or the righteousness of God. And I don't think we believe it. Because if you and I actually, if we expanded our view of God and saw how sweet he was this one time for all, in the midst of the pain and the things that we can't control, we go, well, yeah, but if he could do that, if he could do that, then there's no doubt he has got me. This is what it looks like to be a believer in Christ Jesus, that when the hurdles of the whirlwind of suffering and pain and anguish of this world comes, that we actually get to hold fast to something other than our works. That we get to, hold, we get to have a stronghold of something having other to do with our emotional capacity to handle the suffering that we, get to, that we get to be confident, that we can actually be known with the body of Christ, that we can actually be weak and wait on the Lord, meaning go to the God in our weakness, ask God for wisdom, as it says, and he will, what, renew our strength as we just read. These words aren't lip service. This is our God. That we get to remember this in the midst of the suffering and the trials. And that's why James pivots after the warning of don't be tempted, don't be deceived. He goes, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. And I don't think we do that. I think Jesus was sweet for our eternal life and our get out of hell free card. But my fear for myself and for the entire church is that we abandon our first love as it says in Revelation. And in the midst of the suffering and trials, we go, God, you can't be near. Instead of going, God, you are intimately near. That in the midst of our suffering and our pain, we get to remember the man that suffered immeasurably more on our behalf. And then in our physical pain, we get to remember the man that suffered immeasurably more pain on our behalf. And in our weeping and crying, we remember the man that wept and cried immeasurably more on our behalf. This is our God. 
This is why that we get up and sing and proclaim God through worship songs. I mean, I just wrote down some of the things that we just sang about. It said, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom of my own, aka none of my doing. I can't boast in it because when I do well, that's just the Holy Spirit in me. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast, I will revel, I will rejoice, I will believe in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Is that not enough for us today? Because if it is not enough, nothing will. My only prayer for my daughter and my son is that they would believe that it is actually finished. That when Christ said it is finished, that it is finished. So what do we have to fear today? So as we close in worship and in response, we can actually come to the table of God and that we can confess the fact that we maybe have been tempted, maybe we've been abandoning God amidst suffering, or maybe things have been good and we still abandon God. Here's the good news today. And I would ask that all of us, that we would take some time as we close in worship, that we would, that we would respond in prayer. Because we actually get access to God on a daily basis. That we would go, and I would just ask that, that you, would let, you would ask that God would search your hearts, as it says in the Psalms. And that maybe for the first time in a long time that you would go, that you would ask and you would repent. Because you have abandoned your first love. And here's what's so sweet about being in the family of God. That we can repent and in the same prayer we can say thanks be to God because there is no condemnation for myself because I am in Christ Jesus. That is what's good news and why we can repent early and often. There will be people up front if you need prayer. Let's pray.